If you would this morning turn with me to Psalm 38 as we continue our study in the penitential psalms. Psalm 38. And we will be looking at the entire chapter uh, together this morning. Before we stand and read together, I would like to again just take a moment to commit this time uh, to the Lord in prayer. So let's pray together. Father, we uh, do come to you in these moments with uh, expectation that your word will uh, speak, that it will not return void. Lord, we humbly submit ourselves to you as your people to your word as our authority, as our um, source of life and truth. We thank you for the gospel that is heralded from the pages of scripture that we just sung about, Lord, the hope that we have uh, in life and death. And I pray as we come away from these words this morning from Psalm 38 that we would indeed uh, cherish the truth of the gospel, that we would cling to the hope of eternity. And if there is someone in this place this morning who has yet to put their trust and faith in Jesus, that this morning your spirit would do a work in their lives to save them uh, from sin and death. God, I pray that you would guard us from error. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable before you this morning. And it's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. If you would stand with me this morning as we continue to read together through the penitential psalms as was the tradition of the early church. Uh, if you do not have a copy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, it will be on the screen so you can read along there as I will be reading from uh, the ESV this morning. And so we'll begin there in verse 1 of Psalm 38. Read along with me, please. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. 
I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. It is shocking Uh, Not surprising, but shocking to me at the normalization of sin that we have seen in our day. Um, Even in the culture itself, just yesterday I was trying to watch a football game, of all things, with my boys, and multiple commercials during the commercial break were uh, promoting and addressing and talking about sinful sinful things, things that you wouldn't even feel comfortable talking about with your doctor, are being broadcast uh, right there in front of my children. Uh, The normalization of sin in our culture is shocking, uh, not surprising. What is more shocking, though, is the normalization of sin in the church in our day. Um, By God's grace, over the last 40 or 50 years, Uh, Southern Baptists as a whole have stood firm against the onslaughts of the culture and sin in our day where many of the mainline Protestant denominations have veered off into worldliness and ungodliness. Uh, And yet, even among Southern Baptist churches, we are seeing more of an acceptance of the ways of the world. Just a few months ago, one of the largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, the pastor was Uh, speaking about how their church um, has many people who are living open uh, lifestyle in sin, unrepentant sin, and he was celebrating this uh, at his church. It is, again, shocking uh, to see such a reality taking place in the church in our day. And with this has come not just the normalization of sin in the church, but we're being desensitized to sin. Uh, in our day. Uh, Things that 40 years ago, 400 years ago, that would have not been uh, seen as acceptable in the life of the church are things that we're not even really aware of in our day that are offensive to a holy God. And I believe there's a, a lot of things that can contribute to this, the normalization of sin in the church in our day. I think one of the main culprits, though, is that we as evangelicals no longer talk about sin. In an attempt to be attractional, an attempt to appeal to the masses, uh, we have presented a message to the world that's more cuddly uh, and, and, and comforting than it necessarily should be in regards to sin. 
We want to appeal to the, the masses instead of being faithful to the word of God. Uh, this has manifested itself in, in our evangelism. So much of what's happening in evangelism today is void of talking about sin. The message of evangelism has become more God has a wonderful plan for your life. The problem with this message is that that's the same message of evangelism that the Mormons present and the Jehovah's Witnesses and others alike. What distinguishes us is the gospel. And we cannot share the gospel with people who are in need of a Savior if they first do not know of their sin. Someone who is desperately ill does not know of their need for a physician until they are shown their state when we intentionally look to be about killing sin and confessing sin and bringing sin into the light, we can be assured that the enemy is not thrilled. Satan and the world and the culture around us are not thrilled by the topic at hand this morning. Confessing our sin before the Lord. It is important for us to understand sin rightly according to the word of God, to address sin graciously to a lost and dying world so that we might overcome sin in our lives regularly and lead people to repentance and faith in Christ. As we look at Psalm 38 this morning, I want you to consider that we see three characters in the passage this morning. I want us to look at each of these characters as we understand a little more about the reality of sin in the world. The first character I want us to look at this morning is God himself. There are several things that we learn here about God in Psalm 38, and the first is this. God hates sin, and his righteous judgment will fall on sinners. If you look at verse 1, it says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Turn this off. Testing. Testing, testing. Satan does not like the topic this morning. First thing we see here about God, God hates sin and his righteous judgment will fall on sinners. If you look at verse 1 of, verse, of chapter 38, this should sound familiar to you. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. This is the same verse that we saw in the first penitential psalm, chapter 6, verse 1. And there, when we read this, we highlighted the fact that David uh, affirms the discipline of the Lord. He understands that the discipline of the Lord is good and right. His complaint against the Lord is that his sin or his, his, his punishment has gone on too long and that it's too harsh. He's questioning the extent and the longevity of the discipline of the Lord. And here in Psalm 38, we get more of an insight into what he's feeling in verse 2, where he says, your arrows have sunk into me, your hand has come down on me. We saw this last week in chapter 32, where he feels the weight of his sin under a just and righteous God. And so in his dilemma, as he's dealing with his sin, we learn that God's righteous judgment is coming down 
on sinners. And we see three words here in particular that are true of God. Verse 1, it speaks of the anger of God, the wrath of God. Uh, Verse 3, we see the righteous indignation of God. All three of these things are true of God this morning that he is angry with sin and his righteous indignation will be poured out on sinners, that a punishment has to be made for sin. This is something that we do not like to think about in our world today, but Psalm uh, Psalm chapter five, verses four through five say this, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11, verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Again, we don't like to talk about the anger and the wrath and the righteous indignation of God, but it is true and it is real this morning. We simply want to talk about the fact that God is love. And hear me, that is most definitely true. God is love, but we cannot understand fully the love of God if we do not understand first his righteous justice. His wrath will be poured out on sinners. And we we see this in the fact that he knows our hearts. Verse 9, he says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. That word longing there means uh, desires. God knows our thoughts, he knows our tendencies, he knows our intentions, he knows the desires of our heart. And in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So in the context of Psalm 38, we see that it is our sin that is the culprit. Nothing is hidden from God. Psalm 69, verse 5, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. So this is important as we come before the Lord in confession, knowing that nothing is hidden from him. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. And so God is indeed angry, and he is wrathful, and his righteous indignation will be poured out. But here's the good news this morning. He hears our cries for deliverance. Uh, This is something that we've already seen in the Psalms that we've looked at. In Psalm chapter 6, verse 9, we see David talking about this idea of God hearing his prayer. It says there, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Uh, We saw this again last week in Psalm 32, where he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When we come before the Lord in true faith and repentance, he will deliver us from sin. Because the third thing we see here about God is he is our salvation. Verse 22, at the very end of the psalm, it says, Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is the love of God. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died in our place. He took on himself that wrath, that indignation that we deserve for our sin. And he absorbed the wrath of God in our place. 
He takes the punishment for our sin upon himself, and he alone delivers us from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And the good news for us this morning is if you are in Christ, he will not forsake you. In verse 21, it says, do not forsake me, O Lord. We've already highlighted here that when David speaks in such a way to God, commanding God to act on his behalf, he does so knowing full well that it is only the Lord who will not forsake him. Earlier, we saw that his friends have already abandoned him, but it is the Lord who is not far away, he says. And when he cries out to the Lord, make haste to help me, he knows that the Lord will be quick to deliver him. And so as we consider our sin before a righteous and holy God, and we consider the deliverance and the salvation that comes through Christ and Christ alone and his atoning work at the cross, we see then that a true understanding of the gospel will lead us to live lives of righteousness and not ongoing sin. We will not normalize sin and allow sin to become acceptable in our lives. Rather, we will live in righteousness. Coming to faith in Christ is not a get-out-of-hell-free type of uh, experience where we come to Jesus and we say a prayer so that we can get into heaven and then go on living in sin for the rest of our days, letting our truth be our own truth instead of submitting to the word of God. Rather, when we come to faith in Christ, we do so that we can no longer live in sin. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Paul speaks of this reality there in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He says there, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. There Paul says to us to not let sin have mastery over us. And if we are not careful, the culture is very subtly wanting us to allow sin to continue to act like our master. And more and more in our day, it's not as subtle as it once was. It is more blatant, it is more intentional, and so we must be on guard. What are the things that we are watching and listening to in our homes? What are our children's, children hearing as they watch TV or, or listen to different things and music? What is it that's influencing you? Is it, is it the word of God? Is it, thing, is it things that are edifying you and making you more like Christ or things that are helping you to cling to the world as if sin is still your master? Be on guard from these attacks. The second character I want us to consider here this morning is David himself. And as we look at Psalm 38, David recognizes three things about himself that we too must recognize about sin in our own lives. The first one is this, David recognizes his depravity. Look with me at verses three and four. It says, there is no soundness in my flesh. There is no health in my bones. For my iniquities have gone over my head. He says there at the end, his burdens are too heavy for him to bear. And what is the culprit? Well, he tells us there, it is sin. It is his iniquities have, have led to him finding himself in this state. We go on to verses 5 through 8 and listen to how he finds himself. He, he speaks of his wombs stinking and festering. But he is utterly bowed down and prostrate finds himself mourning day and night. His sides are filled with burning. His health is, is, is fleeting from him. He is feeble and weak and broken and crushed because of the tumult of his heart. And in this, again, we see it is because of sin. Now, commentators agree that David here is most likely speaking about a physical ailment. He is probably dealing with some sort of leprosy or some sort of skin disease. But I believe at the heart of what David is addressing here is not just his physical state, but his spiritual state. When he speaks of himself stinking and festering, when he looks at the sin in his life, he realizes that he is gross. This is what we call original sin. Oftentimes when we use the word original sin, we think that we're talking about the first sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, that original sin that happened in the garden when they ate the fruit. But rather, when we talk about original sin, we're talking about the state of each and every human being as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. All of humankind fell and our, our nature is that of sin. We are totally sinful. Scripture tells us that we were physically in Adam and therefore all of us have this fallen sin nature. And so, listen, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because at our nature, we are sinners. This, this statement that I just, just said here is something that has been affirmed throughout the history of the church as right and good this idea that we are born 
with a sin nature, this original sin. And yet this doctrine that is so good and right according to the scriptures is, is under attack in our day. Recently, there was a survey done called the State of the Church. And in this survey, they presented a, a statement to evangelicals in America. And the statement was this, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Again, this is in contradiction to what we just said that scripture affirms that we are born in utter sin. And in reading this statement, 65% of evangelicals agreed with the statement that we are born innocent in the eyes of God. We must affirm according to scripture that we are totally sinful. Now that does not mean that we are as bad as we possibly could be. You might think of your grandmother or an aunt or someone who is the nicest person you ever met. You might also think of someone like Hitler and say, well, I'm not as wicked as Hitler, and that might be true. But even Hitler himself could have been a far more wicked man, which is hard to imagine. So we're not saying that we are as bad as we possibly could be, but what we are saying is that sin impacts the entirety of the person. Body, mind, and desires are all corrupted by the fall. We are enslaved to sin. And everything we do apart from Christ, before we come to faith in Christ, even the good things that we do are driven by the fall, are compelled by sin and pride. Genesis 6-5 says, Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Romans 3, 10 through 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. David affirms this reality in his life. The second thing that David recognizes in his life is his proneness to wander. Look at verse 16. Uh, he, he says, For I said, only let them not rejoice over me. And speaking of his enemies, who boast against me when my foot slips. So David affirms that he is prone to wander, that his foot often slips. And in that, his enemies rejoice over him. Look at the next part there in verse 17. He says, For I am ready to fall. I've said before, my, my favorite hymn is the hymn, Come Thou Fount. And there's a line in the hymn that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is our reality each and every day. We are prone to wander back into sin and the old self. And David recognizes this. The third thing that David recognizes here, though, is his sin is ever before him. He sees the consequences of his sin. Continue looking there at verse 17 in the second part, where he says, my pain is ever before me. He's very aware of the consequences of sin in his life. We saw this already in verses 5 through 8. It's impacting him directly. In verse 10, he says, my heart throbs, my strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. But it doesn't just impact him, it impacts those around him. Verse 11, he talks about his close friends and companions who are far off from him. Even his nearest kin, those who are closest to him, are standing far off because of the, the state that he finds himself in. 
Even his enemies are boasting in the fact that he is prone to wander. He is a sinful man. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. They relish in his moments of weakness and brokenness. And then in verses 13 and 14, we see that he finds himself like a deaf man who is mute. He is alone in the world. He is by himself, no one to hear him, no one to listen to. And so you might say to yourself, this is, this is sad and depressing stuff we're talking about here. Is David just, is this just self-deprecation? Is he hiding in his room all day? And I'm a terrible person. I'm not even going to go out into the world. Well, no. David recognizing his depravity and his proneness to wander and the sin ever before him is good and right because it drives him to the cross of Christ. Each and every day as he recognizes his sinful state, it forces him to look to the cross anew each and every day and be dependent completely on the cross for salvation and grace. This drives him to confession and dependence on the Lord. Look at verse 15, he speaks of this. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Then in verse 18, he says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. If we're going to give a definition for confession in this series, I think this is, is a beautiful definition. It is being sorry for my sin. That true contrite heart that we talked about last week, not being sorry because you were caught, but sorry because your sin is offense against a holy God. And then we see it there in verse 20. He says, those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. His desire is to pursue righteousness, to kill sin, to bring sin into the light so that he might walk in favor with the Lord and his standard according to his word. I recently bought uh, a six foot high aluminum ladder for our house. I figure when you own a house, you need to have a ladder. And uh, I've used it several times already. Uh, and it is always comical to me when I climb to the top of the ladder and I see the top step there, and you know what it says, right? It says, warning, do not stand here. And there's the little picture of the man falling and the line through it. And, and what is so comical about that to me is I'm pretty confident and I don't have any research to affirm this, but every single man who's ever existed in the, in the history of the world who's had a ladder has stood on that step. <laughs> and yet, it is dangerous. When you stand on that top step, you are indeed prone to fall. And so when you, when you climb up to that top step, you do so very cautiously at first, as I have done, and initially you're very very cautious and you start to do the job maybe you're painting a wall and the longer you stand there the more comfortable you feel and so if you're stubborn like me you start to reach out further you even get out on one foot and your wife is having a heart attack on the side you've become comfortable and you've forgotten that you are prone to fall turn with me to first john chapter one First John chapter one, verses eight and nine. I want us to hear this warning. 
in verse 8 of 1 John 1, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It is not popular to talk about our depravity, our proneness to wander, but this is our state, friends. Look at verse 9, though. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The truth for each of us this morning is that we are fallen, sinful people who are indeed prone to wander, and our sin is ever before us. Know this to be true this morning. Living in denial of this is dangerous. It opens the door for sin to take residence in our lives. But most importantly, it is, it is against what is true and right according to Scripture, as we just read in 1 John 1. And so we need to recognize this as David did each and every day that we are utterly sinful. And apart from Christ intervening on our behalf, we would deserve death eternal in hell that we are prone to wander, to fall back into that old way of life each and every day. And the consequences of sin are all around us. So friend, look to Jesus today. Look to the cross each and every day in light of this reality. We need to recognize this, but we also need to ask God to keep us. In the hymn, Come Thou Found, it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And then it says there, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Pray to the Lord to keep you. And when sin comes into your life, confess it. When the Spirit convicts you of sin, confess it. The third and final character that we see here in Psalm 38 is David's enemies. Because of David's love for the light and bringing darkness out of the darkness and exposing it in the light of the gospel, there are those who hate him and try to cause him harm. We've already seen this in verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. They are intentionally and deliberately seeking his harm. Verse 16, it says, For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. They rejoice when he falls. The world loves to hear another story of a pastor who's been caught in some sin. They start to rejoice in that, and it is an offense against God, and they, they mock the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 19 and 20. My foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Their attacks are often, and there are many of them who are attacking him. The truth for us this morning as we consider sin in the world is that people love the darkness. And anyone who speaks out against the darkness is hated and despised by those who love the darkness. Verse 19, again, he said there at the end, um, 
my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Some of your translations say they hate me without reason. The only reason they despise him is because he loves the light and they love the darkness. I want you to turn with me to one other place in scripture and that's John chapter three. John chapter three, verse 19. This is Jesus speaking here in verse 19 of John chapter three, it says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But everyone who does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There are many people throughout history who have been despised and persecuted for exposing darkness. I think of Bible characters like John the Baptist who exposed the sin of Herod and it led to John being imprisoned and beheaded. I think of Elijah who went to Ahab and and confronted him for his his sin and Elijah was uh, had to run like a madman to escape the attacks of Ahab. I think of missionaries, heroes of the faith, who have given their lives for proclaiming the gospel in dark parts of the world. I think of one of my heroes in the faith, a man by the name of John Payton, who went to a remote island in the Pacific Ocean to engage a tribe who was hostile towards any outsiders. And he faithfully preached the gospel to them, bringing light into the darkness, and he was despised. They would come to his house at night and and bang on his door and threaten his life. There was a time where he had a knife held to his throat. People came to faith in Christ at that island, though, and to this day, the church still exists. I think of Bill Wallace, a Southern Baptist missionary who went to China before the communists came in. And when the communists came in, they arrested him and tortured him He lost his mind completely and died. They despised him because he was bringing light into the darkness. But I think mostly of of Christ himself. Christ was despised and hated and ridiculed and insulted and mocked. The world hated him then and hates him now because he exposes them for who they truly are. And so the application this morning then, as we close, is that we wouldn't be afraid to talk about sin. Because when we talk about sin, it allows us then to point people to the cross. It allows us then to look again each and every day new to the cross of Christ. Don't be afraid to talk about sin in your evangelism. Help people see that they are in need of a savior graciously point them to the fact that they are in need. Don't be afraid to talk about sin in your home. 
Dad, if you're having a hard day and, and you have failed, don't be afraid to confess your sins before your family and say, kids, look, dad has not lived well today. I wanna confess my sin before you. And I do that so that you know that dad is not perfect. Don't look to dad to satisfy you and bring you hope, but look to Christ. Don't look to me. It would be unloving for us to do otherwise. It would be unloving for us in our evangelism to not help people see their need for a savior. It would be unloving in our homes to make our kids think that we're perfect and have everything figured out. Don't be afraid to talk about sin so that we can point others and ourselves to the cross. One of my first evangelism encounters um, was with a, a couple of ladies at a mall in Grapevine, Texas, and uh, was out with some friends and we were standing there at the entrance to the mall and, and people were coming in and we would stop them and, and share the gospel with them. And um, uh, these two ladies uh, approached me and uh, right away I was encouraged because the one lady said that she was a professing Christian, that she went to church and that her friend who was with her did not go to church and needed to hear about Jesus, that she'd been inviting her to church. And so I was really excited and began to share the gospel with this lady in particular. Um, and I began by addressing the sin problem and helping her to see uh, the sin in her life. And the more I talked about sin, the more this lady who professed faith in Christ became angry with me. And she began to rebuke me and say, don't talk about sin to my friend. We, we don't talk about sin at my church. And what was so sad was this dear lady was very open to what I had to say. She was very receptive. It was her friend who professed faith in Christ who then grabbed her and took her off to the mall and kept me from sharing the hope of Jesus in light of her sinful state. Again, by avoiding the topic of sin, we do more harm than good. It is good for us to talk about sin because in so doing, we are able to point people to Jesus. Jesus.